Yeah, I always wanted to start an episode out with singing, and but I don't know why I just yodeled. I'm not really much of a yodeler, but I do want to welcome you to the show. What's up, y'all? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show, the Chase Service Live Show, and I'm here in your ears. Very excited to bring you a cool show today. We are featuring a good friend of mine, El Luna. And you're like, wait a minute, I know that name. What, what, what? El is an artist and an author. And obviously, a genuinely amazing human being. As a designer, you've seen her work for companies like Medium, Twitter, Google, and others. Uh, she came out of that legendary design firm called IDEO, um, and you've seen her work for sure if you use any of those products. Um, and she was also part of the 30 Days of Genius series here on this podcast and the series on Creative Live, where we took a deep dive in that show in what it meant to find our calling. And that was really through the vehicle of her best-selling book, The Crossroads of Should and Must. An amazing, amazing book. Uh, I highly recommend it. And she's got a really cool TED Talk. Or not, was it a TED Talk? I think she did a TED Talk. But I think the talk that I'm thinking of is um, on the Creative Mornings uh, show. She's really, it's just a beautiful talk that you should track down if you love this conversation. And obviously, The Crossroads of Should and Must are an exploration on understanding what it is that you're you're supposed to be doing. There's a bunch of stuff that you should do, but what in your heart must you do? Um, We covered that in the 30 Days of Genius series, and we touch on it a little bit in this episode, but in this conversation, um, not only do we catch up generally with Elle, what she's been up to, but we also get into two really important projects that I wanted to highlight. One is called The 100 Day Project. You may or may not have heard of a project called The 100 Days of Making. Uh, it was originally started by a gentleman named Michael Beirut, who's one of the world's top designers, founder of some super fancy, super fancy design firm called Pentagram, also a professor of design at Yale, invented this project called The 100 Days of Making. And now, L is the facilitator of that project, and those two folks together, Michael and and L, as the administrator of this, as administrator of this via her Instagram channel. If you have ever made anything a few days in a row, you know what that how powerful that is. And L has this is the fifth time she's fostered this 100 days of creativity. It's an unbelievable project that I want you to know about, and I want you to. Uh, to check out and or if you want to just search the Instagram hashtag if you're too scared to try it I'm not going to judge so in this episode we talk about her new book which is Your Story is Your Power it really does an amazing job this conversation of pulling back uh, the importance of personal connection of relationships of tapping into not just the the sort of dominant masculine point of view that has been a part of our culture for millennia but what about the feminine side, not just for men or women. This is a side that we all have that we're starting to understand better and and how what critical roles it plays in our culture and the role that it should be playing, which currently isn't in in part because of the male-dominated point of view. Now, we're doing everything we can to change that. This discussion, I think, brings, uh, sheds a lot of light, rather. And we also have a guest star, uh, someone joins us mid-conversation, who does an amazing job of shining a light on what has historically been dark. I'm very excited for you to listen to this um, this guest that we have join us. And it's just going to be a doozy of an episode. We were, we're about to live. We're, it's like we're in black and white now. And when you listen to this show, you're going to go live in full color. So I'm going to get out of the way. And But before I do, just a quick word from our sponsor. 
This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Life classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Hi, hi, hi. I'm so happy that you're here. It's nice, because like, sometimes like, I shake their hand, like I can't just shake your hand. No. Welcome to the show again. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, wow. We have a lot of ground to cover. A lot. A lot of ground to cover. So we haven't seen each other in a while. No. Um, can I start off by thanking you yes. for this? So this is a gardenia, which is the first flower from your plant this year. Yes. It was on a table across the room for a second, and I could smell it. And now it's like... Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. And if you're listening to this on a podcast right now and you can't see us smell this flower and you're just, just imagine the most potent gardenia you've ever smelled. It smells incredible. Thank you. It was the very first bloom on the gardenia bush this year. And I saw it and I immediately thought, I think that's Chase's. Wow. Because we're meeting today. See? It's for you. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And that's this beautiful vase, I should say, vase. We're going to just leave that right there. <laughs> um, so... Gosh, you're back. It's been Hi. like maybe two years or so. A while. It has. And the last time you were on the show, we were talking about your previous book, which is right here, The Crossroads of Should and Must. And um, I, I, every time I share our work, that was the previous podcast that we did, uh, there is um, innumerable, I'll just say innumerable people comment about how much this particular book changed their life. Mm. And I think it's in part because people were supposed to be doing the things that they love and they're not supposed to be doing things that they don't love. But what about your personal journey? Like, how did you figure that out enough to write a book about it? Can you go back there for us? Sure. Um, I guess I, I got to a place in my life where um, I started to dream again. And specifically, I started having a recurring dream about a white room. And do you, do you I, dream? I do, yeah, I do. And I don't, I know there's a set of things if I don't do them, uh, like drink too much or, um, or if in, in a weird way, if I don't allow space 
to create something every day. If I just drive straight through my day, then I find that I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams. And if I create every day and I leave the right amount of space in my day for life, then I have crazy dreams, vivid dreams that I remember. And sometimes wow. I can steer in them, but, but so that's a like long answer. Like A little bit, yeah, not wow. regularly, but I've probably three or four different periods of my life had pretty active lucid dreaming phases, I would say. But, well, but that's amazing. And rare. dreaming is, um, it can be a really powerful way in. Mm-hmm. And I was not really going in when I was awake, so I think my dreams started to kind of chip away and, and really find me when I was asleep. And I started having this recurring dream about a white room, and it was pretty simple. It was um, cement floors and really tall white walls and warehouse windows. And when I would go inside of this room, I was filled with the most unbelievable sense of peace and calm. And that was it. That was my dream. Recurring. Recurring. I had it again and again. And one day, a friend of mine, who is my co-author on my new book, uh, on our new book, Susie Herrick, she asked me the question that just turned my life inside out. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this dream in real life? Now, I don't know if you've ever had a dream and then thought, OK, I'm going to go look for this out in the real <laughs> world. But um, I had never done anything like that. And at first, it seemed a little ridiculous. And then I started thinking, huh, I wonder if there might be some intelligence, something going on in my dreams. Um, and so I decided to start looking for it. I ended up finding the white room on Craigslist. It was almost exactly the same white room. Have you ever had something like that? Yeah, it's like a deja vu. Of course. I love oh my gosh, like I've, I've been here before. Yeah. Um, it's powerful, isn't it? It's so crazy powerful. It was, there was a bit of... Um, Oh my gosh, and also, of course. Right. Right? The universe provides, yes. Like, like, yeah, this feeling of, like, just as I'm looking for it, somehow it's looking for me too. And um, it was an apartment for rent here in San Francisco. I got the white room, and on my very first night in the white room, um, I began to panic. The room said uh, very specifically to me that it was time to paint. And that one experience, I mean, that all happened in a matter of months, put me on the a dreaming and very, the, yeah, yeah okay. the dreaming and then the actually finding it, looking for it and believing that it might be possible. That's a big part of it, right? Imagination. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll hopefully talk about that a lot today. But yes, and then I got the way room and um, I started asking questions. I didn't have a lot of answers. I just felt like I was getting better questions and um, ended up writing a blog post, which then was about the crossroads of should and must. These two paths, which are really kind of the same path, just depends on what you're calling it. Um, I ended up writing the, the blog post, which just went crazy. Went crazy and I remember seeing the blog post. That was before I knew you. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw the blog post, and then I met you at Adam Ghazali's party. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. Well, and Medium is so beautiful because you get to just... Um, you get, I basically got to paint the story. Mm -hmm. And then when the opportunity came to turn the post into a book, I said, yes, and it has to be painted. It has to be full color. It needs to be a, like a really beautifully designed object. And it actually, in the book itself, this is sort of a design, this is a geeky design yeah, detail. No, I love it. So the binding is like pretty um, unique in that you can actually see the interior of the binding from the outside. And 
for me, I really love this idea that you could see the interior mm -hmm. because that's ultimately what it was about, right? Yeah. Um, how do you expose the interior and see it? And then you duplicated that on the next one. And then we well. did it the same <laughs> on Your Story is Your Power. Maybe all the books are going to be about really looking inside. Yeah. So that is how the, the story or the arc of the book came in yes. to being. But give us the, for the folks who haven't heard the previous podcast, which if you want to go deep on that subject, we, we talk about it for a long time. And it's very, a lot of people have remarked that that's one of their favorite episodes of all time mm. on the show. Um, in a nutshell, I'll let you give a summary of that book. Okay. In a nutshell, the mm -hmm. summary of the book is this. There are two paths in life, should and must. Should is what we feel are all of the expectations and obligations that culture or family or community put upon us. And when you choose should, you just, you can feel it. Your body tenses up, you get small. Must is different. Must is oh so very different. Must is, it's who you are. It's what you believe. It's what you know to be true when you're really, really quiet and with yourself. And must can be hard to find. And um, some people feel really far from their must. Some people, especially right now with everything going on in the world. Um, you know, what, what is my must in the midst of, of everything that's happening? Um, and how do I sort the shoulds from the musts? And also a time like right now is a very good sorting mechanism, right? That really shows us what's important. Yeah. So those are the two paths. And paradoxically, are you familiar with this man named Gurdjieff? Nope. So Gurdjieff was a spiritual teacher around the turn of the century. And a friend of mine, Soren, was telling me about um, this guy named Gurdjieff one day. And he said that this spiritual teacher posed a question to his students. And he said... Um, if a prisoner wants to be free from prison, what's the first thing they need to know? One student raises their hand and says, the prisoner needs to get to know the guard. Okay. Another prisoner, another student raises their hand and says, if a prisoner wants to be free from prison, they need to find the key. Okay. Gurdjieff looks at all the students and he says, no. If a prisoner wants to be free from prison, the first thing they need to know is that they're in prison. Until they know that, no escape is possible. It doesn't even make sense. So ironically, should is the doorkeeper to must. Until we can really flip on the light switch, until we can really get to know our shoulds, you know, the things that go in our head again and again, you should never, you should always, you should know better than to, whatever those things are that, you know, continue to be the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves, who we should and shouldn't be, um, that's really the, the counterforce that stands in the way of must. So if I could like redraw the crossroads, it's almost like shoulds, the more you get to know them, eventually turn into must. That's a new development since last time That's we talked. That's a new development since the last time we talked. It's true. So in practical terms, yeah. the, what, you, what I heard is uh, the way it makes you feel. Mm. So can you do that a little bit more? Because to me yeah. that, like, that resonates. That's... I, You're very in touch with your feelings, yeah. Chase. I celebrate that in you. We talk about that a lot. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, maybe we can talk about it with, with something, right? Okay. So um, if you, as you get to know your shoulds, you can almost fill them out like a list, right? That's one of the exercises in the book. You mm -hmm. can just, you know, go through the list and just try not to think too much. Just you should never, you know, 
you shouldn't have, you know, wide hips or you should be, you should never age or you should, you know, put on your face before you leave the house, you know, whatever it might be, right, depending on who you are. Um, as you get to know those things, so one of my shoulds was you should not say you're a feminist. Isn't that interesting? In today's, wow. it seems like almost impossible that that could be someone's thought, right, in today's wow. current climate. But um, growing up, I always had this feeling that to say you were a feminist was something like really bad. So whenever I was around people who were really outspoken or activists, you know, how would I feel? Going back to feelings, thank mm -hmm. you. I would feel um, like kind of put up walls or I would, you know, not for me or like, for example, in college, I never signed up for any women's studies classes. Not a one. And I went to a wow. liberal arts school. And that was a largely rooted in this idea that like, eh, not for me. You know, I'm doing something else. I want to, at the time I wanted to be a lawyer, but you know, I'm doing something else. Not, and, and I'm sure many lawyers need to take women's studies classes. <laughs> um, but that was, my, that was my should, and that's how it felt in my body. And it feels a little bit like, um, a little yucky and a little scary, and it feels a bit like, hmm, like, where's, some, where's something else? Yeah. Or at least that's how I respond with my personality type. So, versus must. Mm, okay. Mm. Yeah, right there, right? <laughs> that's how it feels and that how is, it sounded right there. Yeah, like yum, <laughs> yum. And like, I don't know, do you have these things that you just love that you Many. can't explain <laughs> that are unique to you? Ah, oh, that are unique to me, huh? Well, like, let's say we were to take, you know, a, a dozen of the things that you love. Okay. That dozen's probably a pretty unique, rare collection, yep. right? Yep. I get it. If you take more, yeah, you start sort of, uh, yeah, building a. It's, it's even. Is it more unique than a personality? Maybe I don't know, but I get it. So it's it makes you say yum, makes it's, you feel good, and is it as simple as that? Are these feelings like I went to the feeling part because that's how I respond to those two words. One is it's almost sort of obvious and simple versus uh, complex and um, I just like what is it simplicity is the ultimate sophistication and mm. when I think of simple I think of that's just obvious yeah you must do this naively obvious yeah I'm, I think I'm, must is unavoidable okay I think must is choiceless choiceless you know, like you go buy yeah, yeah. eggs or light bulbs. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Must isn't like that. Must is like, this just is. Like, this is it. And if, it's, if it just is and it is obvious and all these words that we've just used over the last 30 seconds, why do we and why did you originally describe it as this, it's different, the must is different than all the things that we end up doing? Because we do... We fill our lives with mostly shoulds, or not, not everyone, we, some. Aspirationally, we wouldn't, yeah. but the reality is that we do buy eggs and we check our list <laughs> and we put our face on before we leave or whatever the thing is for us. Yeah, yeah. Why do we do that? Well, those are good, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. why, do you do each of, why do I do each of those things? And one of the things that I talk about in the book is you can almost go through your shoulds and there's three questions. Usually things aren't so simple, but this one is, is <laughs> we got it down. The first is, um, where did I first hear this? Where did I first hear that I, like, like that I should never age? I mean, I'm, that's pretty difficult to, to not <laughs> age. 
Um, you know, and we see like women in their 50s, you know, as actresses or actors, I'm not sure what the mm -hmm. correct um, term is, but we see women actors applying for, you know, the role of a 30-something woman and they're saying, no, no, you're, um, or we see 30-year-olds applying for 50-year-old yeah. roles and them saying, like, no, you need to be younger, you know, or in movies we see a lot of the older characters getting killed off, right? Like, maybe some of those places might be where I pick these things up, right? Yeah. The second question is, are you true for me? So about the one you should never age. Like, so, you know, my hair is going to change color. My skin's going to change. Everything about me is going to change as I get older. Is it true that I should never age? Well, no. So how am I going to navigate that? Let's bring it into consciousness. And then the third is, do I want to keep holding on to you? Do I really want to keep carrying this idea about how I'm supposed to show up into every podcast, every meeting, every, you know, date, every... Every day, every time I look in the mirror. And this is a beautiful, tender moment. Because in my own experience, there were things that I was carrying around far too well and for far too long. I mean, what does you know, being a feminist really mean? It means you believe in equality. Right, that radical notion that, that <laughs> men and women are equal. Isn't and, <laughs> you know, what's so bad about that? Nothing. Right. It's great. Yeah. And so this idea that I didn't want to be a feminist, like, okay, I can kindly like, put that part of me down and let it go. And I'm inviting something new into my life. And when that happens, oh, it's, it's like this gardenia flower. It's just, things just begin to bloom and they begin to just unfold and open in the way that feels good and can smells you, good. It's true, it feels good and it smells good. So can you tell me, like you just mentioned uh, lawyer. And oh, I, yeah. I first knew you as a designer before an author. Yeah. And at IDEO and, and other places. You've worked in a lot of the top brands in the world as a designer. Um, but was the should, was that the lawyer part of you? Or was that also, was that driven appropriately and personally out of your desires to, to be a lawyer? You're, you're holding your head sideways at me and looking, you're side-eyeing me right now. I come from a long line of really talented lawyers. Got it. And I loved as a kid getting to watch my dad give close. My mom would take me out of school, my brother and I, to go hear him give closing arguments at the courthouse. Oh, wow. And That's like out of a show. That's, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And he's so talented. And to see the creativity and the skill and just to, to speak and to speak on behalf of something that he's really passionate about for me, it was, of course, why wouldn't I want to do that? Yeah. It was so fun. And as I got older, um, I naturally just sort of thought, well, I quite like the lifestyle that I was generously given by my parents. I quite like the, the world that I grew up in. I quite like all of this. So there was a part of me that just thought it was safe. Yeah. And um, I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I mean, let's be honest, I can't even read the fine print on, like, an Ikea <laughs> instructional table. Um, there isn't even any fine print. But I, um, yeah, I, I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer so I can work with other artists, like be an intellectual property lawyer. Um, but I think my applications must have just said, like, please, don't let me in, don't let me in, because I was rejected from every school I applied to. Oh, wow. And if I would gotten into just one chase, I totally would have gone. You'd be meeting Attorney L. Wow. <laughs> I would have gone. 
So. Well, what is it in there? Sorry to hijack that for just for a second. Yeah. But in there is that you was that your access to creativity because you thought you wanted to be an intellectual property lawyer so that you could work with creators? Was that did you not feel like you had creativity like as a part of your fundamental DNA and who you were? I was sleeping at the art studio. I was like literally sleeping in a room that no one should ever be sleeping in. <laughs> and I, um, but for some reason it just never crossed my mind that I could live a creative life. That I could somehow make a living being creative. And I, again, maybe I just didn't have my imagination dialed totally all the way up. But I didn't know a lot of people, you know, they call them starving artists for a reason. And of course, so the people thought, around yeah. us, they want us to be safe and they want us to be taken care of and be okay and not yeah. be a starving artist. So I had a lot of fear about that old myth. And of course, we have to, you know, we're in San Francisco, like the most expensive city in the United States. Mm -hmm. And figuring out how are we going to sing for our supper and do it in a way that's congruent, where we can continue to hold our head up high, it's a real trick. It's a real trick. I don't know if I shared this in our last talk, I'm going to share it again here, but your story and my story are very similar in that, in that I, instead of being a lawyer, it was, originally it was professional soccer, and when I found out that I didn't really want to do that, just based on doing it, I went to college on a soccer scholarship, played it every single day for five years, and had played it my whole teen life, um, but early on, I knew I was wildly creative and I basically wanted to fit in and didn't want to be the weird creative kid. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I happen to be um, athletic, so I'm just going to do this. And it was a means as a six-year-old or an eight-year-old to fit in. Just like, okay, cool, like that, that's acceptable culturally, so I'm going to run to that. And then I, I saw that really kick up again when it started being time we need to think about college and whatnot. I ended up, as I mentioned, on the soccer scholarship, but I... I was like, what do you do? Uh, and I asked my friends, my parents, the people who want you to be safe and looked after. They said, oh, if you're smart and hardworking, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer or there was a couple other choices. Mm, yeah. And these weren't things that were literally prescribed to me like you have to do this. But they were suggestions yeah. on what would be safe and what would be good and esteemed. And in the same breath that you just said earlier, like I didn't know that you could be an artist and not starving because of that moniker in our culture. I literally spent years and years of my life, hundreds of thousands of dollars in school debt and wow. basically pain chasing the thing that everybody else wanted, the should. Hmm. And I didn't know, I, don't rem I didn't remember that about you, the, the lawyer bit. So we're the same, we're the same. <laughs> yeah. And what was it then that allowed you to wake up in that, um, art studio and say, I want to do this forever. Because right now I'm just thinking about the people who are listening. There's yeah. a lot of folks who, for whom some, they have a side hustle or a creative gift that they're, they're curious about or they're at sort of level one and they want to go to 10 or they're level zero and they want to like embrace this. And so I think you and your story are helpful for them. So with knowing who's listening right now or who's watching, what would you tell those people? Oh, well, I don't have any advice necessarily, but I can tell, I can tell what worked for me. Okay, do that. I started doing the 100-day project. Amazing. Let's give a little backstory on the 100-day project. So the 100-day project is this project that Michael Beirut, the 
amazing, brilliant designer, lecturer, author, everything, or Michael Beirut, um, started at Yale. And it was a part, he was a, a faculty in the MFA program. Masters of Fine Arts, for those who don't know the lingo. And it was to make something every day for 100 days, but you have to repeat the same thing. So one guy danced in public for 10 seconds every day. Somebody else, um, you know, drew like a doodle a day. Or another person made a poster in five minutes every day. So you do one thing repeatedly. And he did this class at Yale. I applied to Yale so that I could take his class. And I didn't get into Yale. It's a really, really top, top school. And I didn't get into Yale. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to do the 100-day project. Seven years later, I'm walking down a dusty road in Mexico, and it dawned on me. I could just do the 100-day project. <laughs> Who knows what I was even thinking? I probably just like, had a delicious you know, meal and a margarita. And I was like, I can do the 100-day project. I don't have to go to Yale. I don't have to go to Yale to do it. <laughs> So at dinner that night, I was with some friends. I said, you know, would anyone want to do 100 days of making as a practice? And we could do it together in community. Because, you know, to do it by yourself is hard. Yeah. And to do it in community and have some accountability and people cheering each other on and doing it together, um, wow, wouldn't that be great? And the answer was yes. Everybody there at the dinner wanted to do it. So we all posted on our Instagrams. We're going to start in one week. Here are the rules. If you want to play, you can start. And now we are in our fifth. Year. So you do it for 100 days, and you've done that. This is your fifth time. And we're in yeah. the middle of it right now. Yes, we're on day 38. Okay, day 38. This is about when I'm thoroughly out of good ideas, <laughs> and I like to say the project actually starts. That's when it gets real. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're in our fifth 100-day project. Uh, it's, it's a free and open project. I think of it as one of the greatest kind of mischievous projects because basically people, instead of being on all of their social media accounts are like the mindless flipping that we all do, that I do, it gives you a chance to reclaim your time. Reclaiming my time. Reclaiming I my time. I love that. I love that. Reclaiming my time. Yes. And it allows you also to see what's going on in here. Yeah. What's happening? Do I want to meet a new stranger every day for 100 days? Do I want to learn how to cook vegan food for my daughters who are suddenly vegan? Do I want to, you know, what do I want to do? And it gives you a chance to begin slightly seeing the world in a new way. And one of, some of my favorite stories are, there's this one woman in um, St. Louis. Her Instagram bio said, wannabe artist for real mom of two. Her name is Hillary. She started the 100 Day Project, and her Instagram account went from like photos of her at soccer games with her two really cute boys to these amazing subversive cross-stitch pieces, one a day for 100 days. Wow. And at the end of 100 days, I wrote her and I was like, Hillary. This is crazy You good. can update your Instagram bio. You're no <laughs> longer a wannabe artist. And it's this amazing thing, how scary it is to say, I'm an artist. I make art. Have you ever said I'm an artist? All the time. You do? Yeah, and to me that was a huge piece of actually shifting gears and embracing the side of me that I was mentioning earlier, I had repressed. Um, and, you know, maybe it was for good reason, maybe it was for a terrible reason. I do look at that, I think regret is a horrible thing, and I do look at that time in my life as something that was really, that is very powerful for me now, because I never want to regret, and I do regret sort of not doing it, when not calling myself creative or not calling myself an artist. Ironically, it was skateboard culture that allowed me to see that there could be a fusion between sort of action and activity 
and being an athletic and being wildly creative because I think it's a really that community was where I first really saw it exemplified. Yeah. But you know, early on when I decided to shift gears and call myself uh, an artist, it was one of the things that I now prescribe because words matter. Naming is a powerful thing, yeah. and even just thinking about that humans are hardwired for language, and that's why brands and you know, advertising words matter, because we have an emotional connection to this thing that we all speak, this language. Um, and calling yourself an artist, there's something that clicks in your brain. And when you call yourself a creator, call yourself whatever the, the moniker that you choose is. Um, so yes, I call myself an artist, and I, I prescribe it as a step in the process. Um, your your hundred day project is absolutely incredible. Mm. The fact that you're you're five years in is amazing. Five hundred days. That's a five hundred days of making is crazy. Isn't that wild? People I, in over sixty five countries. Yeah. What? So if people want to check it out. Just a little bit, like, what's the coordinates that we would give them for that? Hashtag the 100-day project. Got it. And it's just making, and the hashtag is the community. Yep. And you can... And we just pick a day every year. Nobody owns it. There's splinter groups. There's people who are, like, you know, against the 100-day project, so they're, like, you know, they have their own 100 days of project. I don't know. But cool. Like, it just, it's an art project. It gets to be whatever it wants to be. So... The act of making, I think we'll talk about that in a second, but the act yeah. of making is, the science is clear that creativity creates creativity. Mm. And I've so in that. the act, yeah, in the I think it's a uh, study by a guy named Mark Runkin in University of Georgia, maybe. You know, I was giving some talk somewhere and I was like, where is that? And I found this really interesting piece of research. But so creativity creates more creativity. But what is the, when, when, do you have a desired outcome from signing up and doing this? And you're not really signing up, right? You just start to do it. You but, start to do it. Okay. We do it annually. We do it once a year. Mm -hmm. But you can start a 100-day project anytime you want yep. with your friends. So there is a desired outcome, and okay. the outcome is the process. You realize that the process is the product? The process is it. And it's about letting go of this idea of creating like fetishized objects. And it's about um, getting beyond the object itself and just continuing to get your butt in that seat every day. To sit down, like yesterday was really brutal. I, yesterday I was like, I had all these other things going on. I had a million reasons to not do it. And also I'm kind of out of some of the ideas that I had before I started it. And I'm doing 100 days of animation, so I'm learning. I'm noticing that from your feed. It's beautiful and it looks hard. It's so, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea. I've never done this before. And so I'm learning on the fly. And um, yesterday I decided to go from charcoal to watercolor. I don't know how to animate watercolor. So it was, and I was getting really frustrated. And, um, but the 100 day project is about like just, do something. Just do it and get it done and get it out there. And um, because you have to do it every day, it really, you know, what is the saying? Done is better than perfect. Yeah. It, it, you know, you just get it done. And you're answering a little question here or a little question there. And I think so often with the crossroads of should and must, sometimes people think that they need to like quit their job in order to find their calling or that they, you know, their job has to be their calling, right? And no, not at all. Like just because you want to 
find your calling does not mean that you need to quit your job. Sometimes a job is a great thing to have while you pursue your calling on nights and weekends. Yeah. Right? Like Keith Haring bust tables and Elizabeth Gilbert was a bartender and you Ansel know Adams put his photographs in menus for 25 cents. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, and then you have other people who make a great career like T.S. Eliot. He was a banker. He was an amazing financial mind. Even look at um, composer Philip Glass. He was like renewing his taxi medallion even as his work was debuting at the Met. Like he just in case, right? And he was yeah. a plumber and electrician. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to figure out like your job and your career and your calling. And there's so many ways to get creative with how you make money. And it's really important to have a conversation with your art, like with my animations. Do I want my animations to pay the rent? No. I need my animations to have a sandbox where they can just explore and I can learn and I can have a safe space. Um, so have a dialogue with your, with your practice and figure out, you know, what does my art want to be in my life? Does it want to be responsible for health insurance? Like, maybe, <laughs> maybe not, yeah. right? Yeah. And then with the 100-day project, what begins to happen is you begin to find these, like, little loves. They, they start just growing and sprouting like seeds. And suddenly this little thing that you just kind of were itching to do has now really grown. And again, back to the flower, it's really blossomed in your life. And that's the way must is. It, it makes its own space. But you have to to start somewhere. Yeah. And the 100 Day Project invites you into that process, into that practice. Well, there's a lot about you that I feel like comes out when you realize like what your blockers are. I'm not doing this. You start to realize that <laughs> because I want it to be perfect or I want it to be good or I want it to yeah. be fast or I want it to be so many things. And then that is a great reflection about you. And it turns out that that's actually part of the, your next book is that your story is your power. Yeah. Um, and I thought it would be interesting if, so you are the author, your co-author of this book called yes. Your Story is Your Power. And the subtitle is For Your Feminine Voice. Mm -hmm. um, your co-author is Susie Herrick. And I thought it would be cool if we called Susie. I love that idea. Would you be open to that? I would love that. Okay, so while, you, we're going to keep talking, but we're going to, bring Susie into our show here. Um, and I don't even know, do you know where is Susie right now? Do you know, the team I didn't, ask didn't ask her, but we, we, we're gonna call her right now. Um, and while the team is setting that up, I just thought it'd be cool since she's your co-author. Yes. Um, we'll do a little background on Susie when we bring her to the show. Great. But I, I loved knowing you personally and knowing the Crossroads book well. I thought it was a really beautiful transition into Your Story is Your Power. Mm. Can you draw me a picture? Was it the 100-day project that helped you navigate your way here or what part of? Well, I the Crossroads of Should and Must came out and then Susie was working on her memoir, which she can tell you more about when she comes on. But I got to help her a little bit with the editing of her memoir and provide some illustrations for the text. And you'll, you'll get a sense when we get her on the, on the Skype. Susie's someone who's, who's really um, been in the cave of her own life and dug her way through with a spoon, so to speak, to find her inner treasures. She's the real deal. And in getting to work on her book with her, I... Um, 
I learned so much from someone who has done decades of work. Actually, we have her book here too. Aphrodite, Aphrodite emerges. Mm -hmm. Yes, and um, the more I started really learning about her experience and her story, um, the more I began to look and be invited into my shoulds as a woman. Now, whether you're a woman, a man, Latino, African American, are there certain shoulds that keep you imprisoned as such? And how do we begin to flip on the lights and figure out what those stories are? So for me, going into those shoulds of my own um, femininity, mm -hmm. blocks to my own femininity mm -hmm. largely, and figuring out why was I keeping myself from myself, um, that then unleashed a lot of positive impact in my life. And so we had to write this, this new book. We got Susie's book out the door, and then um, we had our 45th president elected, and um, the Women's March, and there was an opportunity to really uh, write a book about what is it like to be a woman right now during such crazy times. Yeah. So that, to me, that, that opens up an amazing opportunity for us to have a conversation and, and you and Susie to do a little bit more talking and me do a little bit more listening. But what, what so if that was in part the motivation, just yeah. the, culturally, the timing was appropriate. Um, what are some of the things that you discovered, first of all, and second of all, free your feminine voice. Now, as a man, I have a feminine voice inside of me. And this is why we love you, Chase. But uh, so I would like you to first talk about your experience with yeah. finding your feminine voice. And then for the 50% who may be listening who are not feminine, paint a really good picture for us of how important and why that is not just for women. And regardless of the term feminism being yeah. about men and women being equal. Yeah. But just, I think the feminine voice is something that's really important. Uh, I would like to hear you talk about it. Well, I'm feeling a little sheepish right now because I like want to pass the mic to Susie. Um, yep, yeah, is she here? Oh, Hello, coming. Susie. Hi, Susie. Hey, hey, hi, Chase. Hey, Al. <laughs> hi, Sus. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is amazing. Thanks, team, for putting that together. I love it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Chase. Nice to see you and meet you. Um, the timing is perfect. We, we were talking about a couple of other things before, but we've just shifted gears to your story is your power. So, A, congratulations. Thank you. And, and B, I, just the question that uh, as we were connecting with you, uh, or as the crew was connecting us technologically, I had sort of just asked Elle the question of, you know, what was her journey toward finding that this was not just culturally and well-timed, but personally important to her. And then given that the subtitle is your free your feminine voice, like how does that apply after you all talk about it from the perspective of a woman, can you help uh, understand or help explain how that's also relevant to the other gender. And I was just telling Chase, Susie, it's so nice to see you. <laughs> so nice to see you. I was just telling Chase, this is the moment when I wanted to pass the mic to Susie to talk about, <laughs> to talk about, um, you know, 
what is the feminine voice and how do men experience it? Because Chase um, just beautifully said, you know, he said, I'm a man and I also have a feminine voice, which was really lovely to hear. And, um, and we've been, this has come up quite a bit. As we've just finished a book tour, um, I, a lot of cities from coast to coast, and a lot of our groups were both men and women. So can I, Please, can I, yeah, pass, Susie, can I pass it to you? Thank you. This is one of my favorite uh, topics, um, partly because when we do our talks, the men will stand and say amazing things. Um, a man stood up the first talk we gave at Wisdom 2.0 and, and cried because he was so moved by the material and realized his own uh, perspective that the women, he saw the women in his life getting discriminated against and that was painful and also the feminine in him was getting discriminated against. And so the, really the question is um, how to find the feminine voice. I found my feminine voice by looking at the things that I shut down when I felt that shame come to me. And the, the, the sound is not so great, by the way. Are you getting reverberation? We got a little feedback. Yeah, let's try and play through it if it's possible. We're happy to, like, I'll, I'm, I'll, trouble, I'll do anything I can to troubleshoot just because having you here is totally incredible. It's like, I don't, where are you right now, by the way, physically? I'm in Menlo Park, California. Where are you guys? We're in San Francisco, so you had to, saved you an hour drive and down the 101 in brutal traffic. Um, you sound great now. Just we'll go ahead and, and you said you, you'd heard from some men uh, in the audience when you were on your book tour that some sort of uh, interesting, interesting uh, points of view and, and some openness. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, the talks really brought up a lot of emotion. And uh, a lot of the men that I've experienced who go into this material feel a, a lot of grief at the loss of this part of themselves, at the loss that they feel that women have not been part of the conversation and also their own feminine. And so the way that I discovered it was to, the parts of myself got repressed. What was that? Like if, if you, you know, if someone put me down, what would I, what would I just hold off? And that's what I found out, I found out my, what my feminine voice was. What about you, Al? How did you discover yours? Um... Well, someone asked, I guess recently for an interview, what is the feminine voice? And we talk about it um, in a lot of different ways in the book, um, but the, my own experience of it is, um, have, you, have you seen this movie Pleasantville? No. So in this movie Pleasantville, um, the movie goes from black and white to full color. And I think... My, my own feeling, my own experience of the feminine coming online in my life felt like things going into full color, that there was space, there was, um, there was a full spectrum available. And, um, and I started just feeling better. I started feeling better and better. And what Susie's talking about, a little bit about um, how to figure out you know, it's a bit like the shoulds are keeping you from the must, right? Yeah. The, you know, what is it that's keeping you from the feminine voice, whether you're a man or a woman, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is um, we use the symbol of the labyrinth. And the labyrinth is the organizing structure for the book. And the labyrinth has two symbols in it. The first is a spiral, which is um, really about going internal, mm -hmm. going inside. 
And the second is the meander, which we see all through nature. We see it in the digestive tract in our own bodies. And these two symbols together are about going internal and that things just take time. And so the book is organized in that way. And it's about how do you get to the center of your story? How do you find the things that are keeping you from what you really want? from the, the type of work you really want to be doing or the types of relationships that you crave or the type of person you long to be. And in our own experience, it was really looking, you know, first looking out at the cultural stories that we were telling ourselves about ourselves as women, looking at music, looking at fairy tales, you know, looking at all these different things that we tell young girls, right? You know, if you want to get the prince, you need to, you know, be beautiful, be slim, um, be demure, yeah, be beautiful, be a great housekeeper, right? And um, then you get the prince and become queen. And we started really looking at, at the ways, the storytelling that's been going on for, for generations and asking, like, is this really our collective happily ever after as women? Is this really the world that, that we dream of? And the answer is no. So what's that all about? So you go in deeper. Then you, we looked at our family stories and um, also looked at personality. And ultimately, really at the center of your story, realizing that, um, at, that only you can be at the center of you. At the center of the labyrinth, it's just you. And you know, at that, at that kind of quiet, centered place, there might be some insight that comes forward. And Susie and I both had a unique experience. I'm wondering if you could share the story about the, the placemat. Oh yeah. Well, one of the things that I discovered was that when I had when I was in the middle of a breakup, that I had this internal voice that was really critical. And uh, so I sat down with a friend of mine, and I said, "Let's write everything down that we can think of that comes up from us from our our center about women." And so we wrote it down on a placemat, and it was disturbing. It was really disturbing. So I started getting a real sense of that these themes that showed up in my unconscious were themes that show up in misogyny in history. And that was the, that was the real clue to me that I had to do a lot of internal work. So I started talking to this internal misogynist and changed its uh, occupation from critical to supportive. And then, uh, which enabled me eventually to really confront my father and my father's life completely changed. Stem to stern. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life. And it was, to me, it really showed that when you do the internal work, that's when you have the most impact on the world. And so when Ellen and I got together to do this book, we wanted to set up a roadmap of how to do that, to really talk to that piece in us, those disparate voices that get lost. And the feminine voice is such a disparate voice in our culture. And yet it's such a needed, you know, voice. I'm a psychotherapist and I've been reading lots of articles lately about how depressed our youth are and, uh, and you know, in college and then also in, in tech companies. And I think a lot of it is the loss of, of connection to the emotion and the physical body. Um, and so, and a lot of this is actually wrapped up, I believe, in the feminine. Um, so anyway. No, I think that's... This is we're super powerful. Could, could I ask you one question on that? I Sorry, one question on that, Susie, if I can. So uh, I brought a conversation that I'd had with my wife um, into a conversation I was having with Brene Brown. 
Uh, Brene, I don't know if you know Dr. Brene Brown, she's you know incredible. Uh, a friend, friend of my wife, Kate and I, and we were talking about, oh wow, I, I felt like a huge part of the future is feminine. There's a like an understanding that is coming into popular culture, which has been a voice that's been widely absent, and you talked about the misogyny that's embedded in all that. And I think it was Brene, and I don't, I, I want to, don't want to misattribute it, but we're talking about, well, and it's also, it's not just male female. It's, it's just, a, it's just things that are besides just male. So, because if we're talking, it's like how do you, how do you wrap? Um, not being gender specific into this conversation. I was wondering if you guys could address that. Susie, is that um, something you could tackle? That's a great question and it's uh, really topical, I think, because um, what would our language look like? What would our interactions look like if it wasn't gender specific? Yeah. Like how, what kind of dialogues would we have? And so I think it's a really good question um, we, we talk about the feminine because that's the disparate voice that we were focusing on. Absolutely understand. Um, yeah. Which would lead into that dialogue, which is what happens when you take out the imperative to be strong or to be masculine or to be goal-oriented or to, you know, have, you know, strategic planning, you know, that kind of thing. What, what happens when you take that out and allow for things like meandering and someone, someone to take time with their emotions and, you know, what, what happens? when we can just sit with that. Yeah, I think your, your, your all approach, I'm trying to listen and learn here, but I'm also trying to navigate for our audience. I think this is a, it's an incredibly powerful topic to, it is, the, it is the feminine voice that we have to talk about. I think it's interesting that there is, or potentially are, innumerable number of voices and the fact, like, like, without the gender part, I think it's like the gender-free restroom. Like, to me, that's a fascinating topic that um, I'm watching unfold, sort of in real time. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't address the fact that we've got a thousand miles to go mm. with the feminine. Like, and so if if there's another group of people, or I don't even actually have the right words for it, because we have our language, we're limited by language in sort of the duality of gender. But so let's park the, that sort of third piece just for a second and let's go back into the feminine. And is there a way to talk about, I think what I've heard so far is if the masculine is goal-oriented and uh, you just used four or five terms to describe it. Or what the culture describes it as. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words here. Like, that's a really important and powerful distinction. Um, would you do the same for the feminine right now for us? You talked about, like, taking time and being in touch with feelings. And give us four or five other um, terms that we can sort of help to understand that through. Did you want me to do that, Al? Or I, I, doesn't one, one of you all like? I, I'm just I kind of want to hold you all here so I can <laughs> like get a bunch of knowledge in a small amount of time. Appreciate that, really. Um, well, for me, when I started looking at the things that I had staved off, the things that I thought were bad about me, like the number one thing was that I wanted relationship. That was a big one, and I had been you know teased in my early childhood about that wanting to be engaged with 
uh, people and doing things and, and having romantic relationships, that was really important to me. And that was often, you know, poo-pooed and said, you know, why are you focusing on that? And I realized later is that was the part of me that knew the intelligence in me that knew that relationship was really important. And, uh, and there's a lot of, you know, edu- you know, evidence now about how humans evolve via good relationships. And, and the feminine and part of us gets that. And, and women tend to be very good at that, is engaging in good relationships and know how to have relationships that are really healthy and engaging. And it's actually best for our brain chemistry to have those good relationships. What, what so are, that's one. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. What about your, some of your experiences, Al? Um, we also talk in the book about, we saw something in the Obama administration that was really cool. Um, women were seeing that in meetings when they, during his first term, that um, when they would, when one of the women would share an idea, sometimes other people would take the idea. Sometimes men would claim it as their own and, you know, just talk over the women. And they started to see this happen. And the women did something really wise, which is the same thing we saw happen last week with the, or before last week, but with the Bill Cosby conviction. Right? What we saw was women, instead of being isolated in their meeting room or instead of being isolated in this court case, women started coming together. And they started sharing intelligence with one another. And what they, what they decided to do was they called it an amplification strategy. And whenever a woman had an idea during one of these big board meetings, the other women would all, oh, good idea, Jane. Great. Thank you, Jane. What are the next steps on that, Jane? Everyone just amplified her voice. And Obama took note. And during his second, um, and he, he actively said that he saw the women doing this, and he started calling on the women more. And during his second um, administration, he actively made it a point to put 50% women in leadership positions, which wasn't the case in his first term. And so that's an amazing example of women coming together. And we see, you know, with the Cosby conviction and with the Me Too movement, right, mm-hmm. we see women coming together and, and saying, you know, I... I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be alone. I want to share my story and I want to be heard and I want to be believed. And what we see these brave women, 60 women coming together and um, really sharing their story and dissolving this idea that, you know, women are alone and, and crazy, right? We just, we were just talking about this last week. And um, that's, so women are really good at community. Women are really good at relationship. They're good at community. We can come together. And it's, there's this quote in the book, you know, how might war and capitalism and a thousand other things had been different, how might they all have been different had they not been designed with half of humanity locked outside the door? How might the, and that's um, Gernan Anirdas, I can't say his name, we'll have <laughs> to include Nidadas. it. Yes, yes. Um, you know, how might things be different had, you know, women not been locked outside the door? What type of a world might we be in now? Um, I was, I guess when I first started, this is a really tactical story. I, when I first started doing this work, so I got to work on Susie's memoir, Afriati Emerges, and she's, Susie's been doing this work for decades. And, um, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when I first got wow. to work on her book, um, I, I was going out on a date. And on this date, uh, we went and had tea, 
And it was just like an afternoon tea. You know, I was kind of like maybe 20, 30 minutes. You know, if there's something there, we'll go out again. And it was nice, but I probably wasn't going to go out with him on another date. And at the end, he offered to pay for my tea, which was really nice. And I, I, I thanked him, and we got up to leave the tea shop. And he cranked his arm back and slapped me on the butt. No way. Way. And I'm thinking, well, at first I'm like, ouch. And seriously, like, this is Northern California. Like, these things aren't supposed to happen in Northern California. And just a few years ago, like, not that long ago. I got to close my mouth right now. (laughs) Right? That's how I was. (laughs) So first I was shocked, and then I was angry, and then I'm thinking... Like, just get out of here. Like, your car's right there. Just this guy, you know, don't waste your time. What is the voice that says, don't say anything? What is the voice that says, oh, just smile and nod and thank him for the tea and don't make a big deal. Don't rock the boat. This is one of the biggest things that I've learned from Susie and her work and that hopefully is in this book is that the more you get sorted out in here and you stop taking the shit in here, excuse me, Mm. that's what it is, you get sorted out out here. And I knew in this moment that actually the most loving thing I could do was to just not be okay with what he had just done. And that was a new thing for me because my personality type, which we talk about the personality types in the book, is to, you know, put a smile and like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, don't rock the boat, it's fine, just be okay, you know, just make everything okay. And I decided to not make things okay. And I turned and I looked at this guy and I, and I said, you know, mustered all the courage in my body. Um, it was really, really hard. And I, you know, I think I put my hands on my hips and said, you know, I think you're here because you want to meet a nice girl and you want to go on a second date. And just so you know, you know, if you slap her on the butt, she's not going to want to go out with you. So there. And I like <laughs> ran to my car and... <laughs> Like that's such a tender moment moment for me because that's how it that's how it kind of starts working its way out. Mm-hmm. Once the internal misogyny is seen, and it's like, why why do I think it's okay for someone to hit me? Why do I think that's that's so violent and inappropriate? Why wouldn't I say something? And the more I began to realize how inappropriate that was, and have incredible love for myself the more I began practicing in little ways, you know, with this guy or in another situation, or if I had been in the amplification meeting, that would have been cool. It's like you begin to find moments when you can try on your feminine voice. You can try on this voice that says, I want to go on a date where this doesn't happen. You know, I want to, I want to be in relationship. I want to be in a meeting. I want to be in a meeting where, where it doesn't happen. And so how do I begin to create that change? And one of the things that Susie said many years ago to me, and it's so beautiful, is love doesn't always mean making things okay. Sometimes love means making things not okay. And that was really, uh, that was like a, like my brain exploded when she shared that with me because that's what she did. And, um, and that's what we begin to talk about in the book is how to realize, you know, what's not okay inside. How do you, do you really want to look in the mirror every day and hear that same, you know, it's sort of like the cultural misogyny gets internalized and it sort of becomes the story that you tell yourself about yourself. Not even sort of. Every day. Yeah, and that's how it was for me. Yeah. And as I began to wake up to it and realize, I realized that not only did it impact the story that I told myself about just existing as a woman, 
but also in women I encountered. I was in San Francisco crossing the street one day and I saw a woman and the inner misogynist came on and said something about the woman. And in that moment, I basically did what we talk about in the book, which is you have to, I got to have an intervention with myself on the sidewalk and, you know, go through like a, a process of, of intervening and saying, like, we've got to say something nice. This is not working. I don't want to live in this world. And right then and there, the woman sneezed. And I got to say to the woman, bless you. And it was like this, this intimate, immense moment where it, it, it just, it's like this, this saying where, you know, like when you take one step towards the gods, the gods take 10 steps towards you. And this feeling like the more I began to heal this part of me, um, the more it felt like it began to reflect externally in the world around me. And it continues, you know, it's ongoing work. It's a labyrinth. We continue to go inside and go inside. Um, and it continues to reflect externally with what we see happening, econo ec I guess economically, but environmentally, politically, with everything we see happening in the news. It's a really, it's a really scary time. Is it also potentially a very profound time? If it, is, it, is it just scary, or is the other side of scary potentially something really powerful? And I'm asked that, like, because y'all are going through this. I think we are all culturally, but I can't take a piece of that. Like, I have to understand, is, is the other, uh, or is the place that we're going because of this moment, it's clearly, it, it's better. Is on the other side, is it more, is it hopeful, is, it, is there promise, is it like, help, I think you get there in the book, help us understand it in this conversation. Like, where are we going? Well, can I respond to that? That's, yeah, oh, sorry, I, you probably can't see. I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> okay, great, great. You, you're, you're a bit blurry, but I sorry. can see you. Thanks. Um, I feel a little bit blurry. I, I think that to answer your question um, directly, which is, I, and I think you alluded to this earlier, which is that I think that when we get this, then I think we can have a real impact on the planet. And I think that we are at a crossroads right now, that we are in a real dire place. And I've been concerned about this for a long time. Elle and I have had this dialogue for a long time about how the earth is called Mother Earth, and yet she's treated horribly as well. And so, uh, and I, and I want to say what Elle has, is showing you is that um, all the work that she has done to get to this point where she can step out in moments where she never did before is, is a practice of, and we, we went back through many generations in our own genealogy charts and, and found really interesting things along the way that would keep women from speaking. Like I found out that I had all these relatives in the Salem witch trials. And um, what we learned is that the more that we stepped out of that and, and spoke from this place, because we had to do it first inside, the more impact we'd have. And so if, if everyone could get a sense of how they've diminished this part of them, that gives them far more, uh, much more energy, much more gravitas to actually make these statements. So when she did these things, she had hu a huge impact. And I think that's one of the things that I think will really have impact on the planet. And I, and I, my hat is off to Toronto Burke. I mean, really, for the Me Too hashtag. And, and when she talks about when she, um, 
when it started coming up and the Me Too hashtag came, became very visible, she thought that she would be pushed aside and that she would be forgotten like a lot of African-American women are. But actually, she got recognized for it, which was a huge step. And, um, and I think that as a culture, this culture in particular, we're starting to wake up. There's been a lot of negativity coming at us from, you know, uh, the powers that be. But I think that actually people are coming to the plate because of it. So I think we are in this amazing moment in time that can potentially have huge impact on the planet and maybe get to the point where we have a society where we can have these kind of dialogues everywhere, which would be my dream to have this really shift everything. I, I think you, both of you are putting your finger on it. It's, it's a really scary time. You know, we, it's, we've never been um, just, you know, right now as we are even talking, like our, our ice caps are melting. We're seeing unprecedented, you know, temperatures. We're seeing incredible war, displacement, refugee crisis. It's, and one of the kind of thesis of the, of the book is that the loss of the feminine at an individual level, as that continues to get reclaimed and reclaimed and reclaimed, a lot of individual change creates a lot of collective, collective change. Yeah. And what's it going to be like when there's um, women really using their voice and men using their feminine, the parts of themselves that really yearn for maybe a, a different world? Yeah. Um, what's that going to be like? I mean, talk about like the ultimate, I believe it was Dr. King who talked about create, being creatively maladjusted. Yeah. Right? Like when we can really get to this place where we no longer go along with the status quo. I mean, I think this is what so many of the people here in the Bay Area have talked about for so long, being a round peg in a square hole and thinking different. I think this is really how do you, how do you say actually what's going on, this, this status quo is, isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. and, and get that sorted out in here because then what begins to happen is things get incredibly creative and imagination comes online and what kind of a world do we want to be living in? And, you know, all of the, I mean, even just looking at Susie's beautiful house with all the colors and the beautiful art and textiles and, I mean, this is really what it's all about. What do you want to wear? You know, how do you, what do you want to do with your hair? How do, what kind of shoes, you know, like the whole, everything becomes designable or creatable because anything is a possible, you can imagine it. Yeah. You can imagine it. And it's also, at the same time, a really, really scary time. And um, so both of those things are true, but Susie and I have a lot of hope. And, um, and our hope is not just in women, but in men as well. Seeing the men at the events come forward and, and share. Um, there, was, there was a guy in uh, Atlanta who really wanted to be in musical theater. And um, in high school, he loved to sing. So in high school, he applied for musical theater and he got in. And then he went into the locker room and a bunch of his friends said, you know, who are you, a girl being in musical theater? And they meant that in a derogatory way. And he, he unsubscribed from musical theater. Mm -hmm. And then I met him at one of our events and he stood up and he began to cry. And he said, now I work, you know, in the music industry but how much different would my life have been had I just pursued this thing that I loved? And I think people are really getting that. And they're realizing that by reclaiming that, it's, it's giving them access to, I guess, life in full color, so to speak.
I, I, uh, one of the things that I got to watch was my father shift his life from this experience. And so, um, he started treating my mother differently, which shifted her, his friends, um, started, you know, wanting to talk to their wives, wanted the, the communication between me and my father. Then, you know, serendipitously, my brother ended up having two daughters. And so he got to help raise them. And he, and he felt really capable of doing that because of all this work. And uh, he uh, died uh, now two years ago. And when he died, he felt very at peace and very fulfilled. Um, and so I, I think there is a lot of possibility. And I know in L's in my work, um, we've had impact on our families and impact on our friends and the audiences that we've been in, and also the people in the audiences that they get touched and they respond to us on, you know, Facebook and things like that, sharing the impact that it's had. And I, it's just an extraordinary experience. And so it's, and it doesn't surprise me because when we, when we get together and connect with each other, people have more fulfilling lives. I was just going to remark on that. As I was listening to both of you talk, uh, a handful of things came to mind, which probably have their, not even probably, have their identity roots in the feminine. And you've mentioned things like creativity, like community. Mm. I mean, how, how I, I preach about this thing that I call the other 50%, which is you can make something, you can create, um, and you can even promote the thing that you've created. But without community, it's very hard for your idea to travel. And so there's this part of us that needs to be consistently making community for our ideas to be able to go beyond just the four walls in which they were created. And when you think of that, you know, for the folks at home that are trying to wrap their mind around a rather complex topic culturally, um, it actually can be pretty simple. Which this is a very, if you look at creating community, as you talked about, is um, that is something that is aligned with the feminine, that how powerful that is, how required it is for a culture to not just survive, but to thrive. And then if you bring it back to your daily practice of being a person in Idaho, in your underwear at home, trying to make a go as a designer, like creating community is actually, a, a, a it's not just a nice to have, it's required. Yeah. So I, I you know, at, at risk, like I don't want to, um, I don't want to overclaim, or I don't want to um, tread too heavily in a world that I'm trying to put together. You know, on a piece by piece, day by day basis, um, as someone who has grown up with a ton of privilege, white, male, middle class, born in America, born in this time, all these things. But I can't help but think of things like community. When you talked um, earlier, Susie, about that fundamental sort of um, aspect of the feminine being really good at that. Like, it's just so easy to identify, and, and you put it so beautifully in that context. Like, there's, you know, and there's so many other, even the, the ability to create the fact that women can give birth to children. Mm. That's foundation of creativity, right? That's creating maybe the biggest with the capital C. I don't know. Um, but, you know, just an observation uh, of how powerful those um, vehicles are culturally and how um, watering them and growing them is, could be changing. Like the concept of community, how important is that? Well, one of the stories, this is beautiful, and thank you for sharing. His, 
Chase's vulnerability is just makes my whole body just relax and it's just really lovely to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one of the stories in the book that we talk about is, um, and maybe Susie, you can tell it briefly because um, she knows it better, but uh, the story about community and how um, a Star Trek actress ended up changing a whole community. Oh, do tell. There's, um, there's a character on the original Star Trek named Lieutenant Uhura, and she's an African uh, character, a black woman who plays a communications officer. And when she started, the woman who, who played her, her name is Nichelle Nichols, and when she was in Star Trek, I think for about a year, she went to Droddenberry, who's the guy that you know directed, produced it, written it, and said, I want to leave. And he said, you know, you don't want to leave because <laughs> you're having such a huge impact. And he says, think about it over the weekend. I'm going to hang on to your resignation letter. I'm not going to accept it until you have time to think about it. And I want to I interject, Susie, that at this time, to cast her as a lieutenant was a really big deal, as opposed to, yeah. like, the housekeeper or something else on the show. Right. In fact, there is um, there is a, a one of the things that Michelle Nichols talked about was that she was at a convention and a woman came up to her and said, you know, who is black? And she said, um, you know, when I saw you on TV as Lieutenant O'Hara, I yelled to my mom saying, hey, Ma, look, it's a it's a black lady on TV and she's not playing a maid. And then she, this woman said that I knew I could do anything after that. And that was Whoopi Goldberg. Wow. Yeah. And so anyway, wow. so, so in the meantime, so, so this is during this weekend that Roddenberry gave Nichelle Nichols to think about it. She went to a party and one of the um, uh, people, the party said, oh, there's someone who really wants to meet you, a, a fan. So she goes and talks to this fan and this fan says, oh, you can't leave Star Trek. It's amazing. It's having such a huge impact on the African-American culture in this, in this, in this country. It's just so, so empowering. And that was Martin Luther King. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that was one character in a TV show that broke a precedent, right? Communicated so many things to so many people and gave an optimistic thought that, hey, I can do that. I can do something different. Isn't that amazing? Wow. We met a woman in Seattle who went for a casting audition. There was a, there was, it was going to be an advertisement, a commercial, where um, like a Red Cross helicopter descended to save, a woman who, save someone who was drowning. And she walked out onto the stage and she said, I'm here to apply for the pilot role. And they said, oh, no, no, the pilot is a man. The helicopter pilot is a man. You're the drowning woman. And she said, no, I, I would really like to audition for the pilot role. And they said, well, um, not only do you need to audition for the female role who's drowning, but also she's a blonde woman. And this woman was an African-American woman. And she said, I brought a whole bag of blonde wigs. And she put it on. And they said, no, you don't understand. Like, you don't fit the part. And she leaned forward. And she said this in our, in our group in Seattle. I'll never forget it. She said, I know I don't fit the part, but can you imagine it? And she got the part. Wow. And I, I think this is where the imagination and creativity comes on, right? Yeah. Roddenberry had, he had this, he, he, he dreamed of a world where, the, where Lieutenant O'Hara was the lieutenant, right? This woman said, imagine it. 
Just imagine this possibility that's different. Imagine how things might be different. Imagine how the world might be different were it not designed with half of humanity outside the door. What might that world look like? I think there's an interesting um, point to be made, or maybe it's juxtaposition, that we're here in San Francisco recording this, and that the tech scene has historically uh, wildly underrepresented um, women, or women have been historically underrepresented in engineering roles, um, in tech leadership, uh, and I think we could probably name half a dozen other verticals, but specifically here. Is there some, is that a genesis that, you know, you all are both from here, is that a thing that has really played an impact in motivating this work out of you? Is that part of how it came to be? You mean in terms of the tech, in the tech world, women being misrepresented, I mean, underrepresented? Yeah, that, that it's just like, it's like it, to me, it's, of course, women are underrepresented almost everywhere in uh, roles that would typically in that old world mentality be associated with that. And, and male, for engineering, for example, that we are in this place where that is the narrative, does that, did that, like, was it the environment that helped push you all to do this work? I'm kind of trying to figure out if, like, we're all a product of our environment, but is it, what, was it something like, we have to do this work? Was it a call to action, just, you know, and, and was it being in a, a place like Silicon Valley where there is, I think, maybe even a disproportionately large problem in that arena? I don't know. I'm asking. I'm not sure that was part of the, the genesis for me, particularly, other than generally that women are very um, discriminated against, period. Um, uh, there's a book that we, we used a lot um, called, the, called Misogyny, the World's Oldest Prejudice, written by a man. And it's an extraordinary book because he says it just in the title. And um, that where I see it in technology is I see it not only that women are not there, but also the um, discrimination against emotion, um, the discrimination of, against anything that's colorful, feminine, uh, relationship-oriented. That's all like, no, that's not good, right? And, um, and I think that's the part that I find really of concern. And part of the thing that really concerns me is that these companies now are developing AI and the AI is being developed based on this kind of culture. The paradigm. And what yeah. does that, you know, what does that mean? And I think that's the part where I would like to like really be part of that conversation because the human body responds to each other kinesthetically, biologically, right? We are more fulfilled when we have contact with one another. And so, and they're developing AI now that acts like, you know, that, that to, to listen to people and stuff without really saying, let's get everybody to listen to everybody. Um, so that's the part that I'm concerned about now. And I think the loss of women in that culture, the women that are there are holding up a lot, trying to hold the peace, but there's a huge counterforce against it. And that's, that's a concern. I think Al can speak more to this. She's had more, you know, work lived in, in tech environment. Yeah, um, 
So one of the things that happened um, last year was when we began to see venture capitalists being called out for um, their treatment of women. And we saw some folks handle it unskillfully, and we saw others um, handle it in really beautiful ways. And there was one venture capitalist in particular who came out on Twitter and he said, um, I owe every woman I've ever worked with or not worked with an apology. And he wrote a Medium post about it. And he went through his entire career as a venture capitalist and talked about inappropriate places that he had meetings. He talked about inappropriate um, topics of conversation. He talked about not taking meetings from you know, women CEO startups. Um, he just, he put it all out there. And I read this, I read this apology and my heart just, just opened for this man who was doing a really brave, beautiful thing to say, this is, this is me and this is where I am. And he has an amazing family and he said, you know, I have my, the support of my family. I'm, I'm reading more. I'm, you know, getting help and, and I want you to help me get better. And this is essentially what happened with Susie's dad when she confronted him. And, and it was this beautiful moment. And we talk about this in our book, how when somebody comes forward and when somebody says, wow, look how I've been a part of this paradigm that has hurt so many people. Look how I've participated in it, unwittingly maybe, right? We train people really well. Yeah. And for him to come out and say that, is such an incredible moment to empower and rush in with support and love. And it's a huge transformational moment where they're letting all their guards down, right? And it's not a moment to attack or to point fingers at or to, to shame. And of course, this being the internet, there was a lot of that happening yeah. online, which was so heartbreaking. And I guess for anyone listening, if, if, if you see someone who just really opens up and says, this is where I am. This is really what's going on inside of me. And I want to do better because I want to feel better. I want to, I want to be better. When you see that, to, to meet that vulnerability. And, you know, Brene talks a lot about this. Yep. To meet that and to, to, to celebrate it. Um, and that's, I think that's where, we're, where we are now with the, a lot of the Me Too conversations happening and a lot of people beginning to dialogue. You know, we're, we're, we're coming together and people are starting to talk. There's a quote in the book um, by Mandela, Nelson Mandela. He says, um, um, people, oh, I'm not going to say it quite right, but um, it's about hate and love. And basically about, um, you know, we're not born hating someone based on the color of their skin or their gender or where they're from. And if someone can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. And I think that's where we are, and it is a great turning point. And for the startups who are finding a lot of misogyny and sexism within their culture, it can be, well, there's lots of paths, but one of them is to say, let's be an amazing example of what it looks like to accept that we have a problem and to really ask the women to come forward and share what it feels like to be a woman in our organization. What does it feel like um, with some of our policies? And how do, we begin to, how do we begin to shift our culture? How do we begin to then shift actually what we're building or even how we're building it, right? How do we, maybe what we're even building and putting into the world might be different. And I, I, I guess it, it is an invitation, for, especially for the companies who are really getting a lot of finger pointing right now, 
if, if, if those folks were to say, we want to be a shining light for what it looks like to shift the misogyny within our culture, everyone else would follow suit because it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I think if Silicon Valley can invent all the things that we have, they can certainly be leading the charge on this as well. Um, and it's going to take a really courageously vulnerable leader to raise their hand and sign up for that. One of the things that um, that one of the quotes in the book is about how the, that you know fish and water can't really describe the water because it's all around them. And then when a, when an air bubble goes by for the acquisitive fish, they start to get wonder what the water's about. And that's what the that's what the sexism and misogyny is like. Um, and I think that once we start to be able to describe the water to each other, like for example. One of the things that I notice often in talking, you know, with men in, in athletics is that they often insult each other and call each other a girl. And that's a common practice in TV, common practice everywhere. And so it's like when you when you say things like, had you noticed that? And someone goes, oh, I guess, you know, then you help them say, it's fine. We just wanted to start describing these little things that reflect this cultural phenomena of, of that half of the human race is discriminated against and let's let's work together so that it doesn't have to continue that way amazing thank you both for doing this book hmm. how long did it take you did it just fly off fly off the page or was it a 10-year overnight success what how did, how did you all think about it well, Susie had been working on her memoir for a long time and doing decades of research specifically on this topic. And I, I was the fortunate one who, who met Susie. We met through a mutual friend, one of her students. She was a, a teacher at a graduate program in counseling psychology. He introduced us and thought we would be kindred spirits, which we are. And um, and I had created Crossroads, and so both of those exist, those both kind of existed. And then there was an opportunity to create a third book um, that had, that really took all of that experience and wisdom and um, storytelling and to put it into a new book and to specifically try to get it out there before midterm elections. Wow. So it was pretty quick. It was, I don't know, maybe six to nine months. It was pretty quick. And it really was built on um, the two books, you know, that we both wrote. And, uh, and I mean, I, just the concept of the must, it was our must that Elle put so eloquently. You know, it's the crossword between should and must, and this is the must. Thank you so much for making the book. Thank you so much for calling in from down south. Thank you. Really, really grateful to have you on the show. Congratulations again. Your earlier book, Aphrodite Emerges. Congratulations. Elle's beautiful painting. Yeah, I was going to say, I recognize some of this beautiful artwork. Elle did all the artwork and designed the book. It's beautiful. Uh, and then congratulations again on Thanks. Story is Your Power. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We'll sign off from uh, from the Skype call with you, Susie. Thank you for for being uh, you. And I'm like I haven't read Aphrodite Emerges yet, um, but I have it in my hands now. So I'm grateful. And thanks for for highlighting all the stuff that uh, you did to bring this book to life. So thank you. Well, 
Well, thanks for hearing our voices. Thank you. Oh, so happy, so grateful. And uh, I wish you were in the room with us. Next time we'll have a reunion. Mm. Thank you. Well, thanks for being part of the dream. And I'll sign off now. Okay. Ciao. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Bye. 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 That was awesome. Well, thanks again, Tech Crew, for making that happen. Yes, that was amazing. That was perfect. Um, Isn't Susie incredible? Wow. Like yeah. she's someone, she's a partner you want to have. Yeah. Um, was that, were you, did you have another book in mind or was this just serendipity when you two met and this was just thing that had to happen? This was just a thing that had to happen. It was it, the must. Um, my, so my dream mm -hmm. with this book, with this new book is, um, I wanted to, with the visuals, just with the art and the design, I just wanted something that's really hard to talk about, to be it's almost a little fun and digestible, yeah. and that's so scary. Yeah. Like the book that she was talking about, Jack Holland's book, Misogyny, it just says in giant pink letters, misogyny, with like an old sculpture of Venus de Milo on the cover, and I was getting on an airplane, and I was carrying this book, reading it with, you know, it's such a hard book to read. You know, every chapter I had to bribe myself with, a glass of champagne, <laughs> and I mean the history is horrible. Yeah. It's just horrible, and um, and it's also the history. And it was good to read it. And but I was getting on the airplane, and I had the title facing out, and I thought, "Yee, <laughs> I'm gonna like turn this inward." And I think there was something about, um, I don't know, there was something about that that I felt like, you know. So I think um, with this book, it's sort of like the Trojan horse yeah. of books. Like, how do we talk about patriarchy and privilege and misogyny and how it gets internalized and all these really big things that are so important in a way where someone can walk on a plane and, oh yeah, of course, give it for a friend. Um, like my 15-year-old self growing up in Dallas, Texas, I really would have benefited from a book like this. I would have loved to have known as a young girl that it was actually a great thing to be a feminist. And maybe I would have taken different classes in college. Maybe, I mean, who knows how much would have been different even in my own life, and I'm a woman, right? Yeah. So um, I think our hope in getting it out there is how to really guide people to the center of their story. And um, it feels a little bit like a workbook in that way because everyone's journey is gonna be different. But ultimately, I think it's a book about love, and I selfishly would really love more people to read it and, and for there to be more love at every level. It's pretty hard to top that as the last line. <laughs> if I could just like turn the cameras off right there, I would turn them off. But I want to say thank you so much. Super courageous, wildly creative, incredibly powerful um, project. And... Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Also, cannot leave without plugging the 100-day project one more time because that is just a, mm. a force of nature. Um, I forgot to ask, is there um, a you start every year, and is there a, is it just following you is probably the best way if you want to follow along with Elle and the tribe that you've built that, that does this together? They should probably just follow you online and you're just like at Eluna, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's a website. We finally have a website. It's the100dayproject.org. The so you could just day. check that out in like February yeah. or March. 
So cool. <laughs> and I would like to do something. Like we've had Can a we couple of little, yeah. We've had a couple little thing called Twenty Eight to Make. We had Thirty Days of Genius, which you were a part of, where you get a thing every day. Like maybe we do a thing where you like my toes are twitching. Yeah, That's a good sign. Okay, maybe we we we. It's a yeah. I mean, I know you've had tens and thousands of people who are doing that with you. I think that we've got a pretty good community here that would be interested in. A hundred days is so hardcore. It's so hardcore. It's enough to make a big shift. Yeah. And if it's around something that you really want more of in your life, you're signing up for it. And I'm, I'm, I love your E-L-L-E-L-U-N-A on Instagram and Twitter too, mm -hmm. on everything, right? Yeah, everywhere. Um, you should follow, if you don't already follow Elle, her animations are awesome. Mm, thank you. I'm learning <laughs> every day. I have, I've never done animation, so. But that's the point, right? You're learning in public? Yeah. And like, can I have a thank you for you too? I'll take it. I'll take whatever you're given. I've already got a flower. I you got like. a flower. And thank you for just creating this space, creating this forum. For I mean, we talked about a wide-ranging amount of things and bringing in Susie and your um, generous, kind heart. Thank you. I think having you talked about creating a space with the book to have conversations or inviting, um, just acknowledging for, like, for example, when, say, when she brought up, Susie brought up the, the sports, athletic, like, oh, you did that like a girl, for example. Um, and when she said just to bring awareness to that, like, yeah. um, from the position that I'm in, I, I feel like that's the, the thing I would like to do most is provide a place to have a conversation about it. Mm. Um, and I'm on an, a, an interesting journey there, too. I feel like I'm learning every day. And there's to have you two on the show is <laughs> a great privilege. Well, there's one thing that Susie kind of, you could feel, mm -hmm. but she didn't say it, but it was everything. When she said that, the way that she pretended to say, oh, did you hear how you just said that? Did you realize there was absolutely no judgment in her voice? She's, It was this yeah. kind, gentle awareness. Yeah. And I think that, that that's so much of it. It's, there, somebody said, truth without heart is cruelty. Just because we have a sword of truth doesn't mean we should swing it with all we've got, right? If you really, really want to keep people in the conversation, if you really want to stay in relationship, you've got to marry truth with kindness. You've got to marry it with heart. And in that way, which, the way that she just shifted that, yeah. just, oh, we're still on the same team. I'm just, I'm just helping you see. It's a beautiful dance. She's a good partner. Well, thank you again so much. Thanks, Chase. Signing off for another show. I'll be back in your ears hopefully again tomorrow. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. 
I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.